Good morning. Today's reading is on page 548, and it's Psalm 11. For the director of music of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in hearts. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth, his eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulphur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Thanks, Andrea, for reading very much. Let's, uh, let's pray together as we start. Heavenly Father, thank you that you promise that every time we open the Bible and we ask you, you will speak to us through it. And so we pray that you would do that for each one of us this morning and that we would have ears to hear what it is you want to say to us. Amen. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's the question we're going to be answering this morning. And more specifically, what should Christians do when they come under severe pressure just for being Christians? What advice should we give to our Christian friends and family when they come under severe persecution just for being Christians? Well, thankfully, we still face relatively light headwinds in this country for being Christian. But people can still make life pretty difficult for us if they want to. So whether you're at school and you get laughed at for holding old-fashioned views, or you're at work and told you can't send out a carol service invite because it's not inclusive enough, or you're a teacher and you're told to teach something as true when you know the Bible says it's a lie, or you get attacked for not just going with the flow when you think through the cultural issues of the day. Or you're a church minister and you're marginalised for holding to the Bible as being true and authoritative instead of compromising and going with the popular vote. I mean, these might be relatively light forms of pressure, but they can still be pretty difficult for us to deal with, can't they? Of course, it can be a lot worse in lots of countries in the world. So Christians in China or Iran or Pakistan thinking about going to church this morning and knowing there might be a jail sentence at the end of it if they get caught. You know, when our lives and the lives of our family and friends are made difficult, sometimes very difficult, just for being Christians, what should we do? Fight or flight? Well, we're in Psalm 11 this morning, and it doesn't give us a situation-specific answer. In other words, it doesn't say, in this situation, do this, in that situation, do that. If it was going to speak to every possible situation that every Christian in the world was going to face, even this week, we might be here for some time. What Psalm 11 does do, though, 
is give us the right lens to help us think through the options. And it also gives us the big picture answer, which King David, the author of the psalm, found, which is to take refuge in the Lord. That's what he says in verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. In other words, whatever we do, we should take comfort in the promises and character of God. So if you're a Christian here this morning, that's the aim of the psalm, that's why it's in the Bible, that whenever we come under pressure for following Jesus, or whenever our friends and family come under pressure for following Jesus, we take comfort in the promises and character of God. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, it is brilliant that you're here. Thank you for being here. For you, the aim of the psalm is actually slightly different. It's more of a reality check psalm. In other words, it's a psalm that says you might think the world works one way, but actually God is working in the world in a very different way. And you need to know that now. So when he returns to this world to one day judge it, you're on the side of the righteous, as this psalm describes it, and so are welcomed into his glorious new creation for eternity. So that's where we're going. And verse 1, take a look at verse 1. That's the 1000 BC version of Run For It. Take a look down at verse 1. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. So it sounds like David's got a big problem and his friends or his advisors are giving him some logical, sensible advice. Run for it. We don't know the exact situation that he's facing, but whatever it is, it doesn't sound good. Bows and arrows, shooting and shadows... It sounds like Saul or Absalom or another one of David's enemies are after him. They are well equipped and they're intent on taking him down. Now the wicked described here are those people who are against God, his king and his people. And the righteous or the upright in hearts, those are the people on the side of God, his king and his people. And here it sounds like the wicked are winning, doesn't it? Long story short, it was a serious situation David was outgunned and in serious peril. So what's our natural reaction when we're in a serious situation, we're outgunned and in serious peril? Well, unless we're James Bond or an Avengers character, I'm guessing it's to run for it. And it's logical too, isn't it? Because verse 3 says, when the foundations are being destroyed... What can the righteous do? In other words, when the house of cards comes crashing down, what other option is there but to run? Well, there is another option. Verse 1 tells us, In the Lord I take refuge. I don't need to run to a safe place, David says. I don't need to panic. I don't need to keep my head down. Because I'm trusting in the promises and character of God. I think that's what take refuge means. I mean, we can't literally take refuge in the Lord. But what we can literally do is take refuge in the promises that he has made through the ages to people including us and take shelter in his eternal, unchanging character. Now, it's worth saying this psalm isn't telling us 
that we always need to stick it out. There may be situations that you come under severe pressure for your faith and you just have to leave. So whether it's the school or the job where it's just impossible to live as a Christian and maintain your integrity. Or the church which has departed so far from the gospel you just don't believe the same things anymore. The country where just being a Christian is a likely death sentence. I mean, David ran from plenty of things in his life. And Jesus, when talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, says, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. So this psalm isn't some diktat that tells us we should never run when being a Christian means serious peril. But it is wisdom from David that there are plenty of reasons that our natural reaction to run needn't be the final decision that we take. Plenty of reasons why sticking it out is absolutely an option. So what kind of reasons does David give us? Well, firstly, the Lord is on the throne. The Lord is on the throne. Take a look down at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. So God is in heaven on his throne. The camera is pulled back from earth into the heavens and then into heaven itself where God is ruling unopposed from his throne. He says something, it happens, he nods, it comes to pass. He is on the real seat of power in the universe. I wonder if you've ever thought what it would be like to be king or queen for the day. The kind of things that you'd do, the changes you'd make, the people you'd dish a bit of justice out to, well, sorry to disappoint you, but the role is already filled. The coronation of His Majesty King Charles will happen in May next year. But in all honesty, whether I'm on the throne or you're on the throne or King Charles is on the throne, exactly the same thing is true, which is we wouldn't actually have a whole lot of power. I mean, don't get me wrong, the throne looks impressive, but the role of the King of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth today is very much a ceremonial role. It doesn't really have very much power. And that is the complete opposite of the rule of the Lord. So the Lord's rule doesn't look very impressive because we can't see it. But the Lord's power as he sits on the heavenly throne is absolute. The Lord doesn't rule alongside anybody else. He doesn't rule in cooperation with government or within a system of law that sits above him. The Lord rules supreme. He is the law. And so when we think of the Lord sitting on his heavenly throne, don't think of King Charles on his throne, or his kind of rule, however good that might turn out to be. Because the Lord's rule is so much bigger than that. And that's why David thinks it's a good thing that the Lord is on his throne. Because it means he's in charge. No one else is on the throne instead of him. It means he's in control. No one can do anything without his say-so. And just think, David says, if God is in his holy temple on his heavenly throne, just think of his vantage point. Think of his vantage point. And that's the second thing that gives David comfort. Take a look at verse 4. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. 
In other words, the Lord's heavenly throne is a great vantage point for watching the whole earth. The newspapers reported recently that the earth's population has just hit 8 billion people. Well, all 8 billion of them are in full view of the Lord's throne, 24-7 every day of the year. He may be on his heavenly throne, but his 2020 vision means he sees things just as if he's standing alongside us. I wonder if you think that's a good thing. I suppose, to be honest, it gives me mixed feelings, because if the Lord is watching and seeing me 24-7, then he is seeing every single thing that I do. And that makes me nervous, because sometimes the things that I do are not things I want him to see. But let's remember, this psalm is a psalm of comfort to God's people, not a psalm of warning. So while it's good to remember that the Lord sees everything that we do, and so reminds us to make an effort to live for him wholeheartedly every day, I think we can take real encouragement if we're Christians here this morning, that the Lord sees literally every single thing that we do, and he still loves us. His eyes bore into our minds and our hearts, and he still loves us. He's still so pleased that we're in his family. He longs for the time that we can live together in the new creation. Isn't that incredible? So let that be an encouragement to you. If you're a Christian here this morning, God knows you better than you know yourself. He sees every single thing that you say and do and think, and he is overjoyed to have you as part of his family. But actually, more than that, the context of this verse in Psalm 11 is God seeing everything being done to God's people by people who oppose him. David is taking comfort by reminding himself that God sees it all. So we can take comfort by reminding ourselves of the same thing. So when somebody says something or does something against you or your family or your friends, just for being Christian, God sees it all. Living in the UK at the moment, it might just be unkind words at work or at school or when you're out and about. In some countries, it could be losing your job or your freedom or worse. Take comfort. God sees every bit of it. He doesn't forget a moment of it. He records every word and action. And we need to know that, don't we? Because the problem with God being on his throne in his holy temple is that he's not standing next to us. And because he's not standing next to us, it can be easy to slip into thinking he's gone AWOL and isn't seeing what's happening in our lives. Well, he is seeing it. His 2020 vision means he's seeing it just like he's standing right next to us. And his vantage point of the throne room in heaven means that's true for me and for you and our Christian brothers in the Ukraine and in China and in every town and city and country in the whole world. That gave David great comfort and I hope it gives us comfort too. The third thing that gives David comfort is that the Lord tests the righteous now. Take a look at verse 5. The Lord examines the righteous. 
And you don't really expect the psalm to go there, do you? You expect it to say, look, the Lord examines everybody and then he judges the wicked. But the psalm doesn't go there straight away. God observes everybody, David says, but he particularly examines the wicked, examines the righteous even. The ESV phrases it as, the Lord tests the righteous, which is something I'm guessing we don't love the sound of. But David thought it was a good thing, something that caused him to take comfort in the promises and character of God. So it's worth further reflection. I found it helpful to think about it like this. So we've seen that the Lord is on his throne in heaven. We've heard that he sees everything. What next? Lots of random stuff happens in the lives of his people, and he's mildly disinterested. How does that sound? Not great, does it? How about this? The Lord is on his throne in heaven, and he sees everything, and he protects his people from every element of suffering, discomfort, or challenge in this life. How about that? Well, I think if we're honest, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Two problems with it, though. Firstly, God would have to immediately take us out of this world to protect us from all forms of suffering, difficulty, or challenge, because this world is full of suffering, difficulty, and challenge. There is no way for us to be immune from that unless we try that cryosleep thing where you freeze your body and then hope to be woken up to eternal life. That is a big problem. Secondly, if the Lord protected us from any kind of suffering, discomfort, or challenge in this life, we would never mature as Christians which means that God would not be able to shape us into the image of Jesus, which he promises to do in Romans chapter 8. Think about what you most admire about Jesus. What causes you to love him the most? It may be how he responded to testing. So when he was offered the world by the devil at the beginning of his ministry, and he said no. When he was offered popularity and kingship by the crowds and he said no. When he was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane thinking about the cross and he kept going. When he could have called angels down to rescue him from the cross but he knew there was a bigger purpose so he didn't. I mean doesn't that cause you to think wow. His life was the most testing of any human being ever. He felt it just as acutely as we do, perhaps even more so. But he knew there was a purpose behind it, and so he kept going. I think David found the Lord testing the righteous comforting because he knew there was a purpose to it. I'm aware that some of us may be going through very testing times this morning. You might be experiencing persecution for your faith. You might be experiencing broader suffering than that. These verses are not designed to minimize the pain or the difficulty that you are going through. What they are designed to do is to give you comfort that there is a purpose to it. The Lord keeps us in this world and allows us to experience suffering, difficulty and challenge at least in part 
so he can make us more like Jesus, ready for when we meet Jesus. God uses our time on earth for our good. It's all part of his plan to shape us for heaven. It's a sign we're going in exactly the right direction. So we shouldn't be discouraged when we face difficult times as a Christian. It's a natural reaction to be discouraged, isn't it? Has the Lord gone AWOL? Hasn't he seen what the wicked get away with? Hasn't he seen what I'm going through? Of course he has. He's seen every bit of it. And he's using our experience of it to shape us to be more like Jesus. He is getting us ready for heaven. That's the third thing that gives David comfort. And if you're going through difficult times, or you know Christian brothers and sisters who are going through difficult times, I hope that gives you comfort too. The fourth thing is that the Lord will judge the wicked later. The Lord will judge the wicked later. Take a look at verse 5. Verse 5, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. So the Lord will judge his enemies at some point in time. Those who are against God, his king and his people. And the psalm's clear, isn't it? You're either righteous or you're wicked. There's no grey, there's no middle ground. And the words are really strong, aren't they? God hates the wicked, David says. And he said a similar thing back in Psalm 5, that the Lord hates all evildoers. I mean, does God hate the wicked? And if he does, why does David find it a comforting thought that keeps him going in times of trouble? I wonder if the confusion comes because of how we think about hate. So when I think about hate, I think about it as an emotional outburst. We slam the door and say, I hate you. It's something people say when they're flying off the handle. It's an emotional outburst. It's not really an appropriate reaction for the people of God. But when David says the Lord hates the wicked, he's not talking about an emotional outburst. He's talking about a settled opposition. And that's a settled opposition that God is allowed to have because he is God. Now it's worth saying that we know from personal experience if we're Christians here this morning that God also has mercy on the wicked. You know, if we're Christians here, then our natural state before God opened our eyes to see our need for Jesus was one of opposition to God, his king and his people. So we know God has had mercy on the wicked because he's had mercy on us. And he's had mercy on billions of other people over the ages. What these verses are saying is that those who persist in their opposition to God, his king and his people, will face God's judgment. And I think David found that a comforting thought that kept him going in times of trouble. Because it meant that when people lined up to have a go at him, just because he was on God's side, God wasn't ambivalent to that. God wasn't mildly put out by it, slightly annoyed by it. God hated it with a passion. And David knew that if the people who did it wouldn't repent of their sin, 
they would face God's justice. And exactly the same is true for us. If we're ever persecuted for our faith, God isn't mildly put out by it or slightly annoyed by it. He hates it with a passion. So if you're a Christian here this morning who's facing a crisis of one sort or or another because you're a Christian, be comforted, take courage. If you're a Christian here this morning who sees evil perpetrated on God's people across the world and wonders when will it ever end, be comforted, take courage. The language in this verse tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt that God takes it very seriously indeed. One day God will call time on this world and anybody in opposition to him, his king and his people will be taken out. Good will win because God will win. You can trust him with that. And the last verse of the psalm tells us why we can trust him with that. Take a look down at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous, he loves justice, the upright will see his face. God will act righteously, justly dealing with everything that he sees, because that is who he is. He couldn't do it any other way if he tried. When I watch my son play football, what are the chances that I won't shout some helpful advice from the sidelines? No chance. It's just who I am. It's going to happen. It happened yesterday. When I tell the other parents this week I won't do it, they laugh at me because they know. It's just who I am. Well, acting rightly, it's just who God is. He loves seeing right and doing right. He loves justice. And one day we will see it in its glorious fulfillment when King Jesus returns. Because verse 7, the upright will see his face. Whatever we've been through in this life, whatever we face because we choose to follow Jesus as our king and we're not ashamed of it, that will pale into nothing when we come face to face with the Lord. The Lord who's on his heavenly throne, the Lord who sees it all, the Lord who tests us now, the Lord who will deal with the wicked in his perfect timing and who will welcome us into an eternity so glorious we can dare to imagine it. And he will do all of that because that's just who he is. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that whatever we face in this life, however difficult or challenging it turns out to be, we can trust your good character and your eternal promises to get us to glory. Please keep us going this week for your glory and for our good. Amen.